Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. That's the voice of four-year-old Michael Dunahy. The audio is lifted from home video his parents, Bruce and Crystal, share with me. Michael is at the hospital, meeting his baby sister, Caitlin. Michael is sweet. He's still got some of that soft chubbiness of a toddler. His bright blonde hair seems permanently tousled. There is Michael on Christmas morning, delivering parcels to his baby sister, carefully unwrapping his own packages. And there is more. Michael at his sister Caitlin's christening. Michael, out building a snowman with his father Bruce, while his mom Crystal films from inside, snug and warm with her baby girl. Michael is all bundled up. The snow swirls around him and his dad as they add eyes and arms to their little snowman. It's as if they're inside one of those Christmas snow globes. These are small glimpses of the little boy, Michael Dunahy, who vanished from Victoria 30 years ago. It's a windy spring Sunday afternoon in Victoria. The year is 1991. It's the end of the Soviet Union and the beginning of grunge. Operation Desert Storm begins. Cocaine Lord Pablo Escobar surrenders to authorities. Brian Adams has the number one song on the charts. Everything I do, I do for you. The movie Silence of the Lambs introduces cinema-goers to Hannibal Lecter. And later that summer, real-life monster Jeffrey Dahmer is arrested. And in August 1991, the first website goes live. I'm describing all of this to help set the scene for the story you're about to hear. And also as a reminder of just how much has changed since 1991. The passage of time is a recurring theme in Missing Michael. Victoria, British Columbia, a pretty Canadian city known for its English gardens and heritage architecture. Its population is often described as primarily being made up of the newlywed and the nearly dead. Crystal and Bruce Dennehy are just beginning their life as a family. They have recently welcomed their baby girl, Caitlin, and they have their four-year-old boy, Michael. 
But on Sunday, March 24, 1991, Crystal and Bruce's little boy, Michael Dunahy, well, he simply vanishes. On March 24, 1991, Michael disappeared from the playground at Blanchard Elementary School, meters away from where his father was watching Michael's mother, Crystal, warm up for a touch football game. It touched off one of Canada's largest missing child investigations involving hundreds of volunteers and several police agencies. This is Missing Michael, the story of the disappearance of four-year-old Michael Dunahy. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Season 3 of Island Crime. If you're living on the West Coast in 1991, you will almost certainly be familiar with Michael's story. Michael's disappearance is absolutely every parent's nightmare. He vanishes in broad daylight from a playground while his parents are nearby. When I first consider telling Michael's story, I wonder if there is anything left to uncover. After all, Michael's parents have dedicated their lives to keeping Michael's story in the public eye. There have been appearances on Oprah, Geraldo, America's Most Wanted. There is a book, Vanished, the Michael Dennehy story. And year after year, the anniversary draws fresh coverage in local and national news. The 250 students of Blanchard Elementary School in Victoria feel a special affinity with Michael Dunahy. It was in their schoolyard a year ago today that young Dunahy went missing. Today, the students, teachers and parents... But it turns out, three decades on, there are many who want to talk about Michael. People who have never before told their story. And there is much to learn about what happened that day, the day Michael went missing. There is also an incredible amount of information to unpack about the investigation itself. You will hear from a number of the detectives involved in Michael's case, from the beginning until now. This is Island Crime, Season 3, Episode 1 of Missing Michael. In each season of Island Crime, I focus attention on the victim and those close to them. Understanding Michael and his life before he is taken could illuminate how he came to harm. In this episode, you'll hear about the circumstances in which Michael goes missing. But first, I want to get to know this little guy. If you've seen one of his missing posters, you'll know he is a lovely child. Rumpled blonde hair blue eyes, a few freckles sprinkled across his face. In some photos, he sports a jaunty red bow tie. In another, he's proudly holding up the first fish he ever caught. Michael Wayne Dunahy is born in Victoria in 1986. He would have celebrated his fifth birthday on May 12th, just about six weeks after he vanishes. My name is Felicia Bernier. I am currently 34. I'm running a small business, and I know the Dunahees through my connection with Michael himself. Felicia Bernier has been missing Michael for 30 years. Michael Dunahee was her best friend. Today, Felicia lives on the other side of the country. I'm actually uh, in a little town just outside of Ottawa called Castleman in Ontario. 
when I was born, we were born within a few months of each other. And so we grew up together essentially for those first five years. Um, our Where we lived, our backyards were like right across from each other. So we were always together. He, he was my other half. If I was there, he was there sort of thing. So that's my connection is he was my best friend. Felicia once lived in the Pioneer Co-op where the Dunhees lived at the time of Michael's disappearance. It was, you know, just a housing project. We all lived in our own little row houses and where my backyard came out to, his was just across the way. And then there was a a local park. So, I mean, it wasn't difficult for us to hang out because I could just run across the yard to his house and he could come over to mine. So if I wasn't at my house, I was probably at his and vice versa. Um, And then, I mean, if... Crystal was taking him to the park for whatever reason, or my mom was taking me somewhere. They were always invited. Like, we were always, just always doing stuff together. The Pioneer Co-op is still there, in Vic West, a little working-class neighborhood that sits on the site where the village of the Songhees people existed for thousands of years before, just minutes from present-day downtown Victoria. Felicia is just four when she loses her best friend, For her, the idea of Michael is stitched together by pictures and stories she has been told. Like, I've got a picture of us um, sitting together in a chair at Christmas time. And then um, that's the only picture that I have of the two of us together. I have a picture of my Halloween costume the last year that we went out for Halloween together. We We were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, he was Mikey, I was Raph, and so I've got that. I think for him it was probably, you know, having something with the same name. It, it was very exciting for him, and I, I think for me, probably started from, I just wanted to be like my friends. It definitely wasn't something that the average, you know, four or five-year-old girl would be into. When Michael vanishes, he's wearing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt. He is a big fan of the crime-fighting turtles. I like the color red, so I remember that's why I picked Raphael, because he had red. Um, and then Mike, Michael obviously chose Mikey, Michelangelo, and because he liked pizza. My f- absolute favorite story, and from everything I've heard, it just speaks to the kind of kid that he was and the kind of trouble he would get into. We were at church, and I obviously probably not behaving the way we should be. And so my dad separated us, like moved Michael over to the other side of him and I was sitting on the other. So dad was separating us and in the middle of church, Michael stood up, like stood there, put his hips, his hands on his tips, looked at my dad and walked around and went and sat right back down beside me. And just that is, like I said, that's one that I've sort of held on to that I don't know if it's because I've been told it, but I just have this very clear image of him in my head, just glaring down my dad and then just plopping himself right back down and just carrying on the conversation that we had been having. (laughs) I guess, I don't know why that, I I just, everything I've been told, like I said, I know that that was him. He was just, just Michael. I think it's, sorry. Um, And um, just thank you. I moved to the West Coast right around the same time Michael disappears to begin my career in journalism. And like many people, I followed his story over the years. When I worked in the newsroom, we would cover the yearly anniversaries. And from afar, I marveled at the courage of the Dunahee family. 
Crystal Dunahy and I exchange emails and text messages for a few months. So when I meet Crystal and Bruce for the first time face-to-face in the spring, I feel like I'm already getting to know them a little. I drive south down the island to Victoria to meet them in person. I pull up in front of a wooden two-story house with green trim, kind of a Cape Cod style. It's on a quiet street. The home is surrounded by lavender. Lace curtains hang in the windows. The lawn is neatly trimmed. There's a horseshoe above the front door and a welcome mat that says, Grandchildren Spoiled Here. There's a couple of seats on the front deck and it looks like somebody sits out here and smokes. The Dunahees live in Esquimalt, a place where they both have family roots, a township on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, just outside of Victoria. Milo, their small chatty dog, is there to welcome me into their home. Well, we're not really familiar with podcasts, so it's okay. like... <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Yeah, so, Joe Rogan. Yeah, well, okay, yes, yeah, so okay. I, I know about, that's what all I know about podcasts, okay. The Dunahees were a young couple when their world turned upside down by the tragedy of losing their little boy. Today, they are grandparents. But Bruce and Crystal's lives have been intertwined since their teens. Okay, it's Crystal. Dunahee. <laughs> He's as chatty as I am. <laughs> uh, my name's Bruce Dunahee. I'm Crystal's husband, Michael's father. I was born in Port Francis, Ontario. My dad and mom met here. My dad was in the Navy on the coast here. My mom was from Victoria. They got married. And my brother was born here. My dad got out of the Navy, moved back to his hometown, Fort Francis. And me and my sister were born there. Then we moved back to Victoria when I was about four years old. Bruce has just walked into his living room after a day at work. He's wearing a faded T-shirt from one of the earlier Keep the Hope Alive walks for his son, Michael Dunahee. He's tired. It's been a long day at the shipyards. Good for C-SPAN, Victoria Shipyards. Oh, okay. And what do you do there? I'm a laborer. So I don't know what that means at C-SPAN. What would you Uh, do? Blast, power tool, hole watch, fire watch, clean up, variety of stuff, yeah. But I enjoy the work. I started for them... Yeah, shortly after Michael disappeared. I'm sitting in the Dunahee's dining room, a comfortable space surrounded by family photos and on one wall, an homage to Bruce's beloved Boston Bruins. This couple has endured the most awful thing that can happen to a family. Their journey together began at the Esquimalt High School, not far from where we are sitting now. Well, we went, we went to the same, we graduated the same year from the same school. Oh, we didn't date in school? We actually went to school together, but did not hang out together. We met, dated for six months, and got married. <laughs> we hooked up uh, May 83, we got married October 83. I asked Bruce to think back to the early days of his marriage to Crystal. We were young. Fine, I was, wasn't working, I was doing a lot of different jobs back then. I think when I first got married, I was I got a job at the Coast Guard. My dad worked at the Coast Guard. He got me a laboring job there. And then from there, I went 
roofing and tar and gravel roofing with Universal for three seasons off and on. I worked at the Empress Hotel on a big rental job they did way back in the early 80s. Well, I was after Michael was born, so that had to be 88, I guess. I've always been in painting, always had side jobs, working, cutting lawns. Always been busy. When I was working at the Empress Hotel, I was on graveyard shift, so I'd come home and look after Michael during the day, and Chris would go to work during the day and stuff like that. Today, Crystal Dunahy is a very young-looking grandma. The afternoon we meet, she is dressed casually in a baseball cap and exercise wear. She has always been athletic, active, and you can still clearly see the young mum Crystal was 30 years ago. The bewildered woman thrust into the spotlight by her son's disappearance. Bruce and Crystal were married in a Catholic church. A beautiful portrait from that day hangs on the living room wall across from where we're seated. The wall is covered in clusters of family photos, including some, of course, of their beautiful baby boy, Michael. Nothing exciting, just a normal pregnancy. He, he was late arriving and then took forever to deliver, so <laughs> after that it was a sort of fun and games. When their firstborn arrives, the baby is named Michael, after one of Bruce's good friends at the time. Michael shares his middle name, Wayne, with his father. The Dunahee's young family is busy and engaged in their community. Crystal and Bruce are both into sports. Football, slow pitch, lacrosse, bowling. They camp too. There is a large family and social network surrounding them. Michael attends preschool at the Vic West Y. He's getting ready to go to Vic West Elementary for kindergarten in the fall. Inquisitive, always wanting to go to play. Learn, and he is learning how to ride his bicycle without the training wheels and all that. Kid stuff, that fun stuff that boys like to do. Yeah, in the, the complex where we lived at the time, there was a playground in the middle of the complex, so he was always out there playing. He was really outgoing. Liked planes and cars like every little boy does, dump trucks and... So it's just starting to get that adventurism to venture out and play on his own. He was very articulate. Yeah, he's not, wasn't afraid to, to talk, communicate. And he was easily made friends, which is his father's nature. <laughs> very outgoing, chatty. He, uh, he was pretty clever. He wasn't, a, wasn't really a big kid for his age, but I remember lots of times he'd be playing with a toy and a bigger kid would come and take it away from him. And he'd go find another toy and make the other toy seem more interesting. The big kid would come and take that away from him, then he'd go back and get the toy he wanted. We'd go, my, we'd go baking with my mom, my great grandmother. Grandmother looked after him a lot. My grand, my, and my dad looked after him like when we were working. They'd take him for a couple of days and always have him overnight there. My, my grandma, my, my mom did a lot of canning and baking back in the day. So and my dad took him fishing up in Shawnigan Lake there. Got his first trout up there. I'm hoping the memories Crystal and Bruce share about Michael will help you connect with them and to care about what happened to their boy all those years ago. But my desire to detail a young Michael Dennehy also has another purpose. There is the possibility that Michael Dennehy is still alive. Today he would be 35, 
a millennial, a man. And these detailed memories of his childhood could jar a memory in a man who may be listening, a man who may have questions about his childhood and perhaps vague memories of his life with the Dunahees. We had a pirate book that he liked to read at bedtime. I was trying to think. He, he liked the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> His Halloween costume that one year was Michelangelo from the Turtles. That's when the Ninja Turtles were just coming out and DuckTales. And those were the main ones that he watched all the time. And Transformers were just starting to come out too. So, I'm asking Bruce and Crystal to recall painful memories. Bruce crosses his arms on the table in front of him. He keeps his head quite low. Crystal sits tall and straight in the chair across from me, only occasionally stopping to wipe away a silent tear. I ask her to tell me about some of the pictures I've seen of Michael. She begins with the photo of Michael with his baby sister, Caitlin. Bruce and Crystal's daughter, Caitlin, is born in the fall of 1990. By then, Michael is four, and in the picture, Michael is lovingly cradling his new baby sister in his arms. It was a new adventure. He was learning how to to help and be the big brother and, and do things with her and be there. So he would have been an amazing big brother, the way he was constantly doting over her every time we, he wanted to help out. Yeah, he always wanted to help and wanted to push the buggy and just to be a part of her life. Caitlin was born in September, just a year before Michael disappeared. She was almost six months old when Michael disappeared. Yeah, he'd hold, he'd hold he'd hold his little sister, very doting over her. Next, Crystal describes the story behind one of the most well-known pictures of Michael Dunahy. It's a vivid, colorful photo of young Michael proudly holding a freshly caught fish. We had gone camping to uh, Horn Lake when I was pregnant, and they went first, and Michael had gone to the caves, and I couldn't go in because my stomach was too big. <laughs> so we used... Uh, Grumpus tent trailer, and he'd always. Bruce's parents, uh, when they were with us, they would uh, take Michael camping, and he would go fishing with him on the boat. He had a little, little boat up to take out on the lake, and they would go out fishing. So that was his first fishing trip. <laughs> he wasn't too keen about holding it. I will later learn Michael's grandpa stopped fishing after Michael's disappearance. Memories of fishing with Michael were just too hard. Surfacing memories of Michael. 30 years of enduring the trauma of loss is something the Dunahees have learned to cope with. So when I ask them to describe their life at the time of the disappearance, there is one word that comes up again and again. Normal. you got two toddlers, so you basically, well, one toddler and a baby, so you're constantly trying to keep everybody organized and everybody's going to work. And he was doing roofing when Michael first disappeared, so it's just a normal... Four people household and getting up, doing your routines, and carry on. We just family plugging along. We were living in a co-op back then. He had his toys in the room. He had his bed, and he had a little mat, like a carpet mat, but it was like a roadway and like streets. So yeah. he plays Hot Wheels on and stuff like that. In the years to come, Bruce and Crystal will maintain a room for Michael hanging on to those toys, birthday and Christmas gifts, in the hope their son will return. Ahead in just a moment, Missing Michael, with the harrowing Sunday afternoon 
when Michael vanishes. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. I'm Laura Palmer, and you are listening to Missing Michael, Island Crime, Season 3. The city of Victoria changes forever on Sunday, March 24, 1991, the day Michael Dunahy disappears. Valerie Green is the author of a number of books about Victoria, its history and its culture. I'm Valerie Green. I'm an author in uh, Victoria, and I've uh, written oh, over 20 nonfiction books. Well, the story of Michael haunted me, and I, I wanted to particularly write this, although it was totally different to anything I'd ever written before. And so... Um, I think it resonated with so many people in Victoria and I felt compelled somehow to tell Michael's story. I love visiting Victoria. A few times a year I take the drive down the island to spend time with family who live here. The tourism tagline says it all. Victoria, BC's vibrant capital city where history boasts an ocean view. And it's true, it's all here. The colonial architecture, the seaside parks just bursting with flowers. While I'm here, I fall asleep listening to the clip-clop of horses outside the hotel, waiting to give tourists a carriage ride. It really is a charming place. Here's how Val describes the city of Victoria at the time Michael disappears. Victoria, uh, at that time when this tragedy happened, was a relatively crime-free city. It was a good place to raise young children. So obviously, uh, Michael's disappearance just shocked the, the city and the whole country, and in fact, the world, eventually, because um, nothing like this had ever happened before. Thousands of years before the settlers arrive, there is a long, rich history of First Nations living here. This is mostly Coast Salish territory. Val describes the more recent history of this place. Well, the city was named for Queen Victoria, and it's one of the oldest cities in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, British settlement started there in 1841, and that was the year when James Douglas of the Hudson Bay Company founded the fort. Um, at the time, he described the, the area as a perfect Eden. And I think that's how we've always looked at Victoria through the years. But it's very much like the old country, England. Today, it's a great tourism centre. Writing a true crime book like Vanished is a departure for Val. She has authored books about daffodils, heritage homes, and countless history books. But it makes a lot of sense to me. Michael Dunahy's story is a big part of this place and of Victoria's past. 
Here's how Valerie begins to unwind the story of the day Michael vanished. It was the area where she was about to play a touch football game with her team. Uh, Not too far from the field where they were playing was uh, a little playground for children. Sunday, March 24th, 1991, began as a very ordinary weekend morning for Michael Dunahy and his family. I interview Crystal and Bruce separately to recount what happened that day, and then piece the stories together so you can hear how Michael's disappearance unfolds that day from both his parents' perspectives. We had a one o'clock football, ladies' football game. Um, so he was had his breakfast and went off to play with his friend just out the back of where we lived. So he was just around the comp within the complex. So he was over playing with his friend and then we'd called him to come home and have his lunch and then we headed out to the the ball field over to Blanchard Elementary School, which is no longer there. Did a little detour, picked up one of our teammates and carried on to the field. That day, Michael is wearing his favorite multicolored rugby pants sewn by his mum. He has a blue hooded coat with red lining and red elastic around the wrist and waist. He is also wearing his Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt. You know, had our breakfast getting ready because Crystal was playing football that day. So we had a little Datsun station wagon back back then, a red Datsun station wagon. So we're getting everything loaded up. We got uh, Caitlin in the car seat in there and stuff like that. Getting everybody loaded up. We had to go pick up Donna, one of Crystal's players on her team. Picked her up and took her with us to the field. But she was in the back seat with two kids. And we got to the field. And Crystal got the gear bag and I got the stroller out and got Caitlin out and Michael wanted to go play at the playground. Uh, I had some swings. It was like one of those, uh, the wooden jungle gyms, basically, with swings and slides. Nothing elaborate. Just elementary school at the time, Blanchard Elementary. The field Crystal is talking about is the site of the old Blanchard Elementary School. Back in 1991, there was a large field and a small playground nearby. It was the team's first game of the spring season. The weather that day is cool and cloudy. The Dunahy family and their friend Donna pull into the parking lot at about 12.35. There was a another boy and another girl that were there playing on the swing, so I basically said, just wait there for Dad and don't go off with anybody else, because like, I wasn't sure where the kids were from, because I didn't recognize them from the distance. So they could have been kids from the girls that were already playing, because there was already one of our team, there was two teams playing already at the time. So our, our team and another team were getting set to take over, like to, to play our game. Well, there were a couple of little kids there, but I didn't see where see if they had left before Michael went there. I seen the kids when I drove into the parking lot. We were parking on the tennis or basketball courts at Texas Elementary School. It's a bit windy out because I had I'd put up Michael's hood because it was windy out and I was tying his hood up and reminding him, okay, he's go to the park, wait for Dad because where we had parked, there was the park just off to the side and we were going down to the field. So it's all within the same area. So I told him all... I, I didn't really want to let him go because it'd be okay. The playground was right there. So I just told him to 
the first time we let him go to the park by himself. So allowing that adventure. And I made sure you listen to mom, don't go anywhere. I'm just gonna push the stroller to the field, get it, get it over there with Crystal where her team was warming up or whatever. We just head over to, the, to where we're setting up, put all our stuff together, and then he goes back to the park. And I was gonna go back, went back to the playground and he was gone. And came back and told me he couldn't find him. I don't even know if he actually made it to the playground. And then we don't even know if he made it to the park, so. Minutes, no, yeah, no, a couple minutes maybe, tops. Minutes. The time it took for Bruce and Crystal to recount that story is about the same time it took for Michael to disappear. I've been to this place where Michael was last seen. I've walked the distance between where the field once was and where the playground once stood. I've also stood in the parking lot where the Dennehys parked their little red Datsun and tried to imagine how Michael could have vanished so quickly. Donna, Crystal's fellow teammate, one of the only other people there to have seen Michael there that day, is dead. She died of cancer, so I can't interview her to hear her perspective on what happened. But you will be hearing from several of Crystal's other teammates, who were also there that day, in the episode ahead. And what about those kids, the children playing in the park before Michael is taken, but no longer there when Bruce goes to the playground? Because it's so close to the, the Blanchard courts that are there, we weren't sure if he did go with those kids, so there was a lot of wait and see to see, well, the police were waiting to see. We went, I guess they made their command center at the Blanchard Courts. So they have a community center there. And they were thinking maybe if he had gone just one to the kids' houses, that parent was figure out, okay, we've got one too many kids at the table. But that wasn't the case. And When I didn't see him there, I went walking around the school. I went down the side street, I couldn't find him. We all branched off. The, games, the game basically stopped. That was already underway. And our game didn't, none of the games proceeded after that. We just, everyone sort of branched out everywhere in the neighborhood looking because there anyone that came after, after us. We'd asked if they had seen him and they, no one had seen him because, like I said, it's the first time we're at the park. They weren't expecting to see, like to keep an eye out for kids, so. Well, I knew I knew he wouldn't wander off. He, he you know, when I, we told him to do something, he did it. He was very obedient that way. I knew he wouldn't have wandered off anywhere. I just sort of had a gut feeling. We had to go to one of the neighborhood houses, the guy, to a fellow that was mowing his lawn, and we borrowed his phone and called the police. And there was a man cutting his grass on, I think it was King, King Street, so I asked him to phone the police for him, and the police came. The first call to the Victoria Police comes in at about 1.06 in the afternoon. I think it was within five minutes or so they were there, because Victoria Police are right downtown, so it's not like it was that far away. And I drove around with them and went up into Topaz Park, drove all around looking for them. Then they, next thing you know, they opened up the community police station at Blanchard Court and they set up a little command center there. And then um, we had to go borrow a photocopier at the drugstore to get, because I had, we got pictures from, I can't remember how we got pictures. Someone, I guess someone from the house where I, 
had a picture in my wallet. I can't remember how it, how it all worked out, but we blew a picture up at photocopying, so we had to photocopy everything because it was all before technology. It's it's a blur. <laughs> People are just coming from everywhere and, and helping to, to look for him. Well, I, I was riding around with the, there was one police in the car. I was riding around with him, and there was a couple other cars. It was a Sunday, so I imagine they weren't like a normal week staff, but there were a couple cars driving around, and then the next thing there was uh, two or three detectives showed up, and then just throughout the day, just more and more police showed up. In just minutes, the unimaginable has happened. Michael Dunahy has disappeared from this playground in the middle of Victoria. What began as a very normal, very ordinary day for this family of four has turned into an absolute nightmare. Nothing will ever be the same for any of them again. And it won't be the same for Victoria either. Here's author Val Green once again. The fear was put into everyone, and this whole sort of peaceful scenario of Victoria seemed to change overnight. And I think in the book I say somewhere it was the loss of innocence. I think it was a case of parents suddenly became afraid to let their children out of their sight. No longer were children walking to school on their own. That sort of innocent freedom had had gone completely. And I could not um, possibly imagine how awful it must have been for Crystal and Bruce who, uh, you know, these things can happen in just a split second. And you, you just, you can't believe it. Michael is in preschool in 1991. His parents had planned to send him to Victoria West Elementary for kindergarten that fall. But Michael will never get a chance to attend that lovely little school. Nor will he ever again have the opportunity to play with his little friend Felicia. You know, my mom has always told me it was really hard to make me understand. Because of course at, you know, four and a half, almost five, it's it's very hard to explain to a, a child, your friend is gone. We don't know if you're going to get to see them again. Anytime a big life event has happened, like when I graduated high school, Crystal and Bruce sent me a, a card to congratulate me and it sat unopened for probably a month. Because at the time, I should have been graduating with Michael. It should have been something that we were doing together, so those were all really hard to get through. I know for me, there's still absolutely a little bit of hope. I just, I'm not ready to give up. Ahead in episode two, the search for Michael. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime, Missing Michael. <laughs>